Good morning, everyone. Turn to your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. As you're turning your Bibles or picking up your phones to go to the YouVersion app, let me just mention a couple things. One is, um, if you haven't been to the collective on Wednesday evenings at 6.30 right here in the worship center, I think you're really missing something. They have been extraordinary worship services. And particularly if you can't come on a Sunday, you know, let's say you have a commitment next Sunday, but if you can make it to a Wednesday worship service, I think that would be a huge boost for you. And if you just get, if you find yourself kind of going this way as the week goes on, Wednesday is one of these things where you go, oh, I'm shot back up and I can make it to the weekend. So let me encourage you to do that. The second is, you saw it up on the screen, November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, our revival services at our church. And it occurred to me um, a couple weeks ago that there may be some of you, many of you perhaps, that don't even know what the purpose of revival services are. Let me give you the purpose. Have you ever found yourself coming to church thinking, I don't know, I'm not really into it. You ever found yourself thinking, I don't even know if God's going to speak to me today you know, when you come to church. You're not anticipating worshiping. Um, You feel dull in your spirit, spiritually. Um, You're not reading the Bible like you know you should, and you feel guilty about that, but, um, you know, you'll get to it. Um, There just doesn't seem to be any vibrancy in your spiritual life. Revival services are actually about fanning into flame your spiritual life. It's like a, a timeout as a whole church family, we come together and say, okay, let's encourage one another, let's hear some really good preaching, and let's fan into flame and kind of reset our spiritual walk. So let me encourage you, November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, lay aside four services, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday and Tuesday, and just take the priority of revival services, okay? Would you stand, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I think I'm going to start, rather than read the first uh, six verses, I think I'm going to start right at verse 7 and go to verse 10. Even though, says the Apostle Paul, I have received such wonderful revelations from God, to keep me from becoming proud, I I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So, now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you say that together? When I am weak, then I am strong. You'll never hear that from the world. The world says, be strong all the time. You know what God says? Go low. When you go low, you will find my presence and power to handle any situation. Bow your heads, please. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each one of us where we're at today in our spiritual life, particularly 
when we have a pain, a challenge, a difficulty that just won't go away. We know that you answer lots of prayers, but there are some prayers that for whatever reason at this moment seem to be unanswered or you said no and we don't understand. Would you help us to thrive when we don't understand why? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Francis Fanny Crosby was born in the early 1800s, and she is known today as the mother of all modern congregational singing. So what that means is this. What we just did the last 20, 30 minutes goes all the way back to a lady by the name of Fanny Crosby. She created more than 8,000 hymns and gospel songs. Extraordinarily prolific. In fact, She wrote so many gospel songs that her producers said to her, you you shouldn't publish under your own name because hymn books are being made up and you're, you're basically filling the hymn book up. Okay? So Fanny Crosby published her 8,000 hymns and gospel songs under 200 pseudonyms. 200 different names. Chances are you're singing some of your favorite hymns and gospel songs and it has some other name to it, but Fanny actually wrote it. She was an amazing woman who thrived spiritually. And yet Fanny Crosby experienced a great difficulty in her life that she lived with until the day she died. In her childhood very young, she became blind and lived her entire life as a blind person. I think Fanny prayed hundreds of times through the years, oh Lord, would you heal me? Would there be some new medication? Would there be uh, a new operation? But God chose to not answer that prayer. But that didn't stop Fanny Crosby from becoming the mother of all congregational singing in America. Another name, J.B. Phillips. J.B. Phillips was an Anglican, so if you're in America, that's an Episcopalian, but he was an Englishman, lived in England, and ministered as a pastor in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, died in 1983. J.B. Phillips was noticing that as he was preaching, as he was, you know, just pastoring the congregation, that many, many people were struggling reading the Bible, particularly young people. They could barely pick up the Bible because it just was like made no sense to them. So J.B. Phillips decided that he was going to translate the New Testament straight from the Greek. That was the only resource he ever used, that he was going to translate the New Testament and give it to his congregation. So, listen to this. During the London Blitz in the middle of World War II, J.B. Phillips in bomb shelters started translating 
the New Testament. And it took him several years. He became very famous in the English-speaking world and went on to write 34 books. The last book he ever wrote was two years before he died, and interestingly, it was entitled The Price of Success. And he talked about how he struggled his entire ministry because he became so well-known. And he wrestled with that. Two years after J.B. Phillips died, uh, uh, he died, his wife Vera wrote a biography about her husband called The Wounded Healer. And she went on to tell the story about how her good, godly, righteous, compassionate, loving husband, his entire life struggled with depression so deeply that he could sometimes not preach. Sometimes he'd stay home in bed for weeks. Sometimes the dark clouds of depression came over him so greatly he was paralyzed. He couldn't write, he couldn't do anything. And in the seasons in which he was doing okay, he'd get back to his translating. But his entire life, he struggled. You think J.B. Phillips prayed that God would take his depression away? Absolutely. He probably prayed that till the day he died. But for whatever reason, God chose not to heal him. Now here's what I think. I think that there are many people in the church who are living with some kind of pain, physical, chronic or ongoing, some kind of emotional or psychological pain from some trauma you've experienced, some kind of hurt in your relationship. And you're praying and praying and praying and you're asking God, God, won't you take this away? Maybe it's an abusive home life that still defines you today. Maybe it's a wayward child who causes you great pain. You may not even know where your wayward child is today. Maybe it's being single. And you've spent much of your life saying, I feel less than because I don't have a spouse. Maybe it's an unfulfilled marriage. And you're saying to yourself, I thought at this stage of my life we would be together and on the same page, but we're not. You know what the Bible calls all those things? Thorns in the flesh. And if there's anybody in the Bible that understands what it's like to live a life of pain without experiencing a let-up, without understanding why, praying constantly, 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 and having the Lord just kind of, no, that's not going to happen, is the Apostle Paul. What was the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh? Nobody knows. And it's probably a good thing that nobody knows because 
we'd end up, if we knew, we'd end up tailoring it and saying, well, that's me, or we'd end up saying, oh, no, you know, judging other people and saying, that can't be your thorn of the flesh, it has to be this. So there are some pretty well-known theories. Maybe it's one of the three I'm going to mention. Maybe it's all three of the three I'm going to mention. But Bible scholars have a pretty good understanding of what it might have been. Number one, some people think that the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh was a physical affliction. If you were to go back one chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and start reading in verses 15 to the end of the chapter, here's what you discover. The Apostle Paul goes on this long list of physical things that he experienced. For example, he was shipwrecked three times. I'd freak out if there was water in the boat. But he experienced shipwreck three times. One time, he was in the sea all day and all night. He experienced 39 public lashes five times. He had experienced being hit by the rod, which takes place still in some countries today, being hit in the back with a rod over and over and over. He he experienced that several times. And so a lot of Bible scholars think that because of the physical trauma that the Apostle Paul experienced, the thorn in the flesh must be the result of all that trauma. For example, maybe he experienced extensive nerve damage. Hey, you get 39 lashes five times across your back, across your legs? That could cause nerve damage. On the other hand, some Bible scholars believe that the Apostle Paul struggled with some eye disease. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, actually the Apostle Paul says that he's struggling with his eyesight. And then in another portion of Scripture, it says that, look how big I have to write. And you can picture the Apostle Paul making his signature on the letter that Timothy is writing for him because he can't write it himself. And he's writing the Paul... And Timothy is guiding his hand because maybe he can't even see the scroll. Imagine the embarrassment of the Apostle Paul who outright through the power of the Holy Spirit healed many people but himself could not get a healing. Some people think that the Apostle Paul, still on the physical affliction, some people think the Apostle Paul struggled with malaria, picked it up, And it was well-known disease in the ancient world, and it would have these severe fevers and lots of different physical symptoms, and it would be debilitating. Some people think the Apostle Paul struggled not with necessarily a physical problem, but a spiritual, psychological problem. In other words, some Bible scholars think that because of the trauma that the Apostle Paul experienced, the times in which he was stoned and left for dead, the times in which he had to run out of a city, that that he experienced some sort of psychological trauma, almost like a PSTD. If you go back and read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you can see how somebody would get PSTD. But then the Apostle Paul says that actually it was a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. 
And some Bible scholars believe that actually psychologically and emotionally that he was under demonic oppression. Can I tell you something? Satan and demonic activity is real. In our civilized culture, we have a tendency to say that all things that we experience emotionally have to do with some form of you know, illness, disease, or disorder. But in reality, while men, much of that may be true, there is still a category that says Satan is real and demonic activity is real. All you have to do is read the gospel accounts, and what you'll discover is that there were demonic activity in people's lives that Jesus healed them of, kept them from speaking, kept them blind, kept them you know, from walking, and Jesus loosed them up, and boom, they're on their way. And it was primarily because of demonic activity. Remember the demoniac named Legion that had many demons inside of him, and Jesus cast them out and threw them into a herd of pigs, and they ran over the hillside? Maybe, just maybe, the Apostle Paul was just so tormented by demonic activity, that it just constantly grated on him. Third category. Paul's thorn in the flesh could have been a person or people. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, you have to go back, before the Apostle Paul talks about all the trauma that he's experienced, he says these words. He calls a group of people super apostles, and it's very sarcastic. What he's saying is, and if you were to read the first several verses of chapter 12 and the latter part of chapter 11, the Apostle Paul goes on a rant about boasting, and what he says is, I refuse to boast about the things that God has done in my life, but let me tell you this. And then he goes on to boast. And then he says, but it's not really boasting if it's true. That is true. Why is the Apostle Paul doing this? He's doing it because there's a group of false teachers, a group that he calls the super apostles, that are literally slandering him, pulling him down, going in after he's gone into a church and left. They come in, they give some sort of teaching, and they're basically saying, now let's pass the offering plate, folks. And they're taking advantage of the people. The Apostle Paul talks about it in, the Philippian, in his letter to the Philippians. He's in prison, and you've got all these people that are saying all these terrible things about him, and all he can do is write a letter. Can you imagine the frustration that must have caused? Now, do not raise your hand. You have somebody at work that's a thorn in your flesh? You have somebody at school? That's a thorn in your flesh. You have somebody in your family system that's a thorn in your flesh. I mean, they send you through the roof. They drive you nuts. And you've prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God to take this thorn in the flesh from you, and the Lord, as of this moment, has not. It could be a person or a group of people. Now, before I leave Paul's thorn in the flesh and get back to us, I need to say this. There's one thing the thorn in the flesh is not. A sinful behavior. 
We have to be careful here because every once in a while you may hear a brother or sister in Christ say something like this. Man, I really struggle with alcohol. It's my thorn in the flesh. I've talked to men through the years that have said, man, no matter what I do, I have this pornography addiction. It's a thorn in my flesh. Let me say this gently, that is not a thorn in your flesh. The Bible consistently says that God calls us to be set free from sin and calls us to a life of holiness. Therefore, think about this logic. There are some Christians that believe that God gave the apostle Paul a messenger of Satan, and they define that as lust. So they say Paul struggled with lust. Well, let me tell you, why would God give the apostle Paul a lust problem in order to keep him from sinning? That doesn't make sense. God never gives a sin to block out a sin. God calls us to a life of holiness and righteousness. Okay, let's bring it back to us. The question is, how can you and I thrive when we live with a pain that will not go away? When we live with a hurt? The term that the Apostle Paul uses for thorn is a dagger. And it's this idea of a, you know, a military dagger, probably like five, six, seven inches long. It's the idea of a constant stabbing. And the pain is so intense that you go, and you can barely handle it. Maybe it was a physical pain. Maybe it's a psychological, emotional, spiritual pain. Or maybe it's a relational pain. But here's the question. Is it possible to still thrive even if you have a thorn that causes you deep pain that God, for whatever reason, hasn't taken away? The answer is yes. And the Apostle Paul tells us in this Scripture passage three ways that you can thrive. The first is stop fighting the thorn, accept it. Accept what you cannot change. This is exactly what uh, Fanny Crosby did. It's exactly what J.B. Phillips did. They embraced the very thing that caused them pain or difficulty and said, I'm not going to allow this to define me. I'm going to move beyond it. Each time Paul prayed to Jesus to ask him to remove whatever that was, a physical, an emotional, spiritual, whatever, whatever the thorn of the flesh was for Paul, the Lord Jesus replied, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Notice, the, notice Jesus did not say to the Apostle Paul, you're going to have this for life. Notice Jesus did not say to the Apostle Paul, no, don't talk about this anymore. Jesus actually didn't answer Paul when he said, take it away. All Jesus did was reflect, uh, deflect it and say, yeah, you don't worry about that. My grace is sufficient for you. Now think about this. Maybe some years down the road, the thorn was removed. We just don't know it. What does accepting 
your thorn in the flesh look like? It means stopping a couple things, and it means starting a couple things. So what are some things to stop? Stop self-pitying. Imagine if J.B. Phillips gave up in the darkness of depression and thought, well, what am I thinking? Nobody's going to want to read. I can't, I can't translate the New Testament out of Greek, and nobody's going to be interested in that anyway. I'm just a washed-up, mediocre clergyman. Imagine if he said that to himself. you think he ever felt that way? And yet he still continued. A lot of things happen to me and you in life that should not have happened, that we're not right, that are unfair, that are unjust, and are just plain wrong. Okay, now what? Once you've made the acknowledgement that you've been given a raw deal in certain things in your life, Okay, what's the next step? I mean, what are you going to do with that? Somewhere along the way, you have to stop and say, I'm going to stop pitying the life that I've been given. There is a little bit of Elijah in all of us. You remember Elijah the prophet? I mean, he calls down, he gives a 69-word prayer. What, a minute? He prays a one-minute prayer. Fire falls from heaven on Mount Carmel, laps up an altar that's been soaked several times, kills hundreds of the prophets of Baal, outruns a chariot in the middle of a rainstorm, and then runs into the desert because Queen Jezebel says, oh, you're dead. Right? He runs off into the desert. He falls down. He's exhausted. The Lord brings an angel along, gives him water, gives him bread. He goes back to sleep. He wakes back up. There's more water. There's more bread. Then he goes off in the desert for um, 40 days into the wilderness. And then, okay, what's going on in his mind? He's still having a pity party, by the way, because he hears a gentle whisper. But before the gentle whisper, what is there? There's an earthquake. There's fire. I mean, there's all these spectacular things. And, you know, Elijah's thinking, you know, God's going to speak to me during this earthquake. No, God speaks in a still small voice. You know what God says to Elijah? What are you doing here? And Elijah says what? I am the only one left. They've killed all the prophets of Baal, or all the prophets of God. Stop. You may have a legitimate cause to be upset over your thorn in the flesh. But what are you going to do after that? What else is there? Except accepting it. Two, stop going negative. Some people go negative because of their thorn. Life becomes one big, angry, resentful rant. This was Job's wife. Now, we have to have compassion on Job's wife because Job, if you recall, in the Old Testament, he had everything. He was a righteous man. He was a godly man. And for whatever reason, God allowed Satan to have a field day with him. uh, Satan took away his health, his wealth, his reputation, and his family. All of his sons and daughters died. 
The only relative that Job had left was his wife. And the book of Job is really about Job having a rant with God. By the way, God, God can take your rants. Okay, stop being polite with God. Start being real. And the only person left in his family system is his wife. And you know what his wife keeps telling him? Curse God and die. Thank you very much. I paid $100 for counseling for that. Thank you. What are you supposed to do with that? Now understand that Job's wife is hurting too. She's lost her babies, even though they're adults. She's lost her reputation because her husband lost his reputation. She's lost her wealth. Job presses into God. His wife goes negative. You're going to have to choose which direction you're going to go when you have a thorn in your flesh. Three, start living with mystery. If you're going to thrive, if you're going to accept the things that are a part of your life that you really don't want to accept, but if you're going to go ahead and accept them, you're going to have to live with mystery. And the mystery is, I don't know why this is happening to me. And I don't know why this happened to me. And there are some things that you're simply going to not know on this side of heaven, right? I mean, all of us should memorize this phrase. I don't understand why God allowed this to happen to me, but I still believe he's good and he's working it out for his good and my glory. Now, how can I say that? Because I've had to memorize it. Four, start humbling yourself. We are not so much different than the Apostle Paul. The besetting sin of the Apostle Paul was pride, so we're told by him that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to torment him so that he wouldn't become prideful because of the great things that he had experienced from God. That is exactly the purpose of a thorn in the flesh for you and for me. It's to keep us from becoming prideful. Now, here's what's interesting. Most of us do not think we're prideful people. But most of us operate under this mindset. I don't deserve what happened to me. In essence, we are setting ourselves up to say we're better than adversity. May I remind you gently and lovingly that we all deserve hell and that your next breath is a grace gift from God. You don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. Everything we get comes from the hand of a loving God. But listen to this. Last week, people in the office started getting an email from me asking for money. And would you send this amount of gift cards to this address? And would you make this donation? And I started getting emails from other pastoral staff and other staff people saying, hey, are you uh, asking us for money? And I said, no, I am not. Well, I got hacked. So we called up our IT person, and our IT person said, oh, don't worry about it. 
And we said, well, I'm pretty worried about it. And he goes, no, you don't understand. You get thousands of these a day. A couple just slipped through. No big deal. Now here's what I think. One of the primary metaphors of the Christian life is spiritual warfare. It's a war. So here's what I think. I think that Satan is throwing thousands of things at you and me a day and a week. And every once in a while, God allows a couple to slip through. And the purpose is to drive us to our knees and to humble us. Five, start receiving God's strength to endure and overcome. Thorns are a weakness. Listen, thorns are a weakness designed to strengthen us. Your handicap, if worked on over and over and over, produces strength on the inside of you. Fanny Crosby couldn't see the notes, but she saw them in her mind. The very thing that you're begging God to take from you is the very thing that God is using to shape you. So number one, accept the things you cannot change. Number two, change the things you can change. Part of what makes the thorn so painful is our feelings of powerlessness. You ever felt that way? You feel like nothing you can do can ever change the situation. I mean, I've tried everything. Nothing's going to change. Actually, that may be true, but there is one thing you can always change, and it's your attitude. One of the books that has shaped my life the most, I read 30 years ago, and perpetually I keep going back to it. It's been a few years, so now I've got to read it again, now that I've said it. It's Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. That's a must-read book. You can read it in an afternoon. Viktor Frankl was a neurologist, a psychiatrist, and a Holocaust survivor. He survived the concentration camp. And Viktor Frankl watched humanity descend into hell. And as a psychiatrist, as a neurologist, He looked around in his scientific mind and came to one conclusion. Everything can be taken from a person, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. You may be powerless to change everything. You are powerful to change one thing, your attitude. Chuck Swindoll, years later, would say this, 10% of life is what happens to you, 90% of life is how you respond to it. So the Apostle Paul eventually changed his attitude and saw what he thought was a liability become an opportunity. He chose his thorn as an opportunity to demonstrate Christ's power and his grace in his life. He chose it to encourage other believers 
by the way, you and me. We're, we're here today. I'm preaching this message because of a guy that didn't get a prayer answered that he wanted. He gets you. Jesus gets you. And he chose this as an opportunity, his thorn, to drive him deeper in his walk with Jesus. So, how do you change your attitude about your own particular set of circumstances that just won't seem to go away? Here's five questions. How is my life better because of my thorn? You ever ask yourself that question? How is my life better because of the one thing that I want God to take away and He's not? Two, what positive experiences have I had that I never would have had if I didn't have this thorn? Three, what people have been helped as a result of my pain. Four, what doors of ministry opportunities have opened as a result of my thorn? Five, how have I grown closer to Jesus as a result of my thorn? You have to accept the things that you can't change. You have to change the things you can change For example, you may have a thorn in the flesh, and your job may be your thorn in your flesh. It's miserable. It's a toxic environment. You hate being there, but you go to work every day. Guess what? If you have an opportunity to change your job, you should change your job. But until that time, you're going to have to develop a good attitude and turn it into an opportunity. So accept the things you can't change. Change the things you can change. Three, be changed. The primary purpose of your thorn is actually to shape the character of Jesus in you. Your life is not about what you accomplish. Your life is not about how many possessions you acquire. It's actually about becoming more like Jesus. I heard it again this week. I'll pass it on. The threshold in America for happiness is $75,000. Family income. If you make less than $75,000, you could be happier. It didn't quite come out the way I wanted it to, but you, you get it. If you make $75,000 or more, making more will not make you happier. In other words, if you make $175,000, if you make $275,000, if you make $375,000 a year, you're going to be no happier than $75,000. Now, some of you are thinking right now, oh, but I could try. Right? I mean, but that tells us something about ourselves, doesn't it? Let me just, let me be the exception. Okay? It is not about how much you acquire. That's a dead end. This week in my devotions, I um, was in the book of James, and so uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, I read it in the message version. It says these words, which sound so counterintuitive to the world. Consider uh, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so that you can become mature and well-developed, 
not deficient in anything. God uses trials and difficulties to shape us to become mature believers. Accept what you can't change, change what you can change, allow yourself to be changed. Now, we saw a demonstration this week in the Texas courtroom. Amber Geiger, an off-duty police officer, goes back to what she thinks is her apartment, opens up the door to discover that there is a man sitting in her living room eating ice cream. She gets frightened and shoots him to death. Except it's not her apartment. It was his apartment. She got mixed up. Botham Jane was murdered by an off-duty police officer who thought that she had a robber or an intruder in her home. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison, convicted for murder. But after the sentencing, Botham Jane Jean's brother, Brant, came up to her and said, I forgive you. I release you. And then said to her, turn your life over to Jesus Christ. The judge goes back to her private chamber, comes out with her own personal Bible, presents it to Amber Geiger, and says, you need to read this in prison. An unbelievable demonstration of grace and forgiveness. But you know what's really going on here? The Jean family is using their thorn. They're going to live the rest of their life with the pain of having their brother and son murdered unintentionally. And it's going to stab them. It's going to keep them awake at night. It's going to cause many tears. Years from now, it's going to cause many tears. But by forgiving the lady who killed him, they accepted the thorn. They changed what they could change, their heart. And the whole world saw what Christians do when they are wrongly done in. They forgive. I understand that there are larger issues of justice, righteousness, all those things, but at its heart, that family is using their thorn to elevate Jesus Christ, and they are being shaped into the image of Jesus. That doesn't make sense to me, apart from Jesus Christ. With Jesus, it makes perfect sense. 
because he who did nothing, deserving death, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's all Bob and Jean's family did, was act like Jesus. Would you stand, please? I'd like to give you an invitation as I close out in just a moment. The invitation is to move to an aisle that's closest to you if you have a physical thorn in your flesh. If you're in pain, if you have a physical problem, if you struggle with a chronic illness and disease, and you're like, is God ever going to take this away from me? You should step out of the aisle and say, I'm going to change what I can change. And that's my attitude. That's my heart. And I'm going to release that thorn in the flesh to God. And he's going to have to do with it whatever he's going to do with it. I have no idea. I have no control over it. But Lord Jesus, would you take this thorn in my flesh and turn it into a place of glory? that you work through me. If that's a physical thing for you, step out on the aisle. If it's an emotional, psychological, spiritual thing for you, if you're struggling with PSTD, if you're struggling with depression, if you're struggling with anxiety disorder, if you're struggling with being too stressed out, if you have some emotional difficulty and it's a thorn in your flesh, you've dealt with it for years, you should step out on the aisle and present it to the Lord Jesus one more time. You go ahead and ask for a healing. Go ahead and do that. You should do that physically, ask for a healing. But you should lift up the bigger picture and say, okay, Jesus, if you choose not to heal me, I'm not going to let this thing get me. I'm going to thrive. I'm going to be a a Fanny Crosby. I'm going to be a J.B. Phillips. I will not allow myself to be defined by this thorn in the flesh. If you've got somebody in your life that is making your life miserable, somebody at work, somebody in your family system, somebody at school, and you just, you can't, you get a visceral, physical response when you see that person. You should step out in the aisle and give that thorn in the flesh over to the Lord and say, yep, that's, that's it. I will not be defined by that person. Okay, if you haven't moved out, do so right now. Jesus, these are courageous people that are standing in the aisles. And they're crying out to you saying, God, help me. Help me to accept the things I can't change. Help me to change the things I can change. Help me to be changed into the image of Jesus. God, would you give greater grace? I mean, my heart says, would you remove the thorn? Would you just pull it out? so that brothers and sisters would have relief from the pain. And I pray this by faith. But if you have a bigger agenda and you want to transform that thorn into something beautiful in our lives, then that's okay too. Use that pain to take us deeper in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Hey, I love you all. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.